Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 44. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. So today is that day when we light that one solitary Advent candle. And, and, and like we said a, a moment prior, this, this image is one that reminds us that light is breaking into the darkness. This is actually a place like the seedbed of Christian hope that light is breaking out. And, and though the darkness is real, the darkness cannot overcome the light. And I, I, don't, I don't know what that image means to you. Maybe, maybe the idea like simply resonates with you. Like there's something that you see that and you go, yeah. But all it does is it kind of, it, it ignites, pun intended, like Christmas warm fuzzies, but that's all. Or maybe it's just you're like, okay, that's another thing that weird Christians do. I'm trying to learn. Okay, so I have to like also light some candles, which by the way, um, there are some Advent candles that we will be uh, offering up here. And I'm going to receive some instruction from Kate maybe as to how you're going to get those. (laughs) Uh, But but yes, is this like another, just another odd image that Christians carry in their practice? And around here, when it, when it comes to church traditions, we are uh, like a bit of a mixed bag. You know, last week we have somebody who's starting an Anglican church come, who's a friend of our community, yet we are not Anglican, and, um, but we embrace liturgy. And so like, what, what, what is this? We're a mixed bag. And what that means is that we come into this season with both vague and conflicting expectations of what we ought to do here. My first year at Gateway, we come in at the end of the holiday season and we're gonna have this Christmas Eve gathering. And every year before that, I didn't know this, but they had these little uh, candles. You, You know the candles I'm talking about. You light them, there's a little tray so you don't burn yourself. But I think these ones, since we met in a school, high school auditorium, they were like just electric. And so people, you know, you'd light them up and you'd sing, oh, holy night. And it was just me and Kate holding down the fort. So we're like, I'm like, we're not doing any candles. If people want candles, they gotta show up and get past. So there you go, no candles. You know what we heard about? We heard about the glory of God coming in through. No, no, we heard that there were no candles. See, we have these like mixed bag of expectations of what we ought to encounter in this season from something that might be as simple as a candle or as potent as an image like that. And so because of that mixed bag, I just want to set our expectations of what, what are we going to encounter today and what are we going to look for in the coming weeks. And to do so, I actually want to look back not to, you know, three years ago over at, um, at a high school auditorium, but um, back to the fifth century. And w- when we look back at that point, Advent had no connection to Christmas. 
I was, I was interested to learn this. Uh, I would think that it went all the way back, but actually Advent actually, it, it came around in the Middle Ages, so it wouldn't be for another few hundred years, but in the fifth century, Advent had no connection with Christmas. Instead, the word Advent comes to us in English from this Latin word Adventus, which means to come. And so Advent isn't even a translation, it's just what's called a transliteration. But Adventus is a translation of the Greek word parousia, which means to arrive. And so what you have packaged in this one word is both the idea of a coming and an arrival. And what's clear down through church history is that for centuries, Christians tied the coming of Christ to Advent. But the coming that they had in mind was not Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem. It was the coming of Jesus in and on the clouds as the just judge of the world. It was his second coming. See, bound up in Advent is the expectation of a new but known reality. It's this thing that we're waiting for, the thing that we know in our bones ought to be. It's, it's often that moment when we see or experience some sort of injustice. We like consider our family of origin, maybe like some trauma we carry, or we see something driving down the road and we're just like, this ought not be the case. And there's something in us that draws that out. That is this expectations for something bigger than that to break in, for healing to come. And for Christians, like, we, we have seen this. Like, we actually have an image of this, this hope, and then we see it in the face of Jesus in the pages of the New Testament. And Jesus, what he does is he looks at the pain of the world, and he doesn't turn a blind eye. He doesn't just walk right past, but he actually enters in. He enters into the smells and textures and sounds of all of that pain, and he doesn't leave it. He actually endures that pain all the way to the point of the cross. See, what Advent does is it brings both the ultimate arrival of all wrong things being put right and the in-breaking arrival, the beacon of hope that is the incarnation of God with us. It brings both of those things to bear on us in this season. And when we see it with Jesus, we see it as one who joyfully enters into it. As, as the, the scriptures say, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Advent brings both of these things together. Or as Pastor Fleming Rutledge points out, this type of hope, it starts in the dark. And man, I wish it was dark in the room right now so we could get a sense of what that felt like. The candle, the candle says, do not give up. The, the candle says, keep straining for a way forward. And you may only be able to see but a few feet ahead of you. But light is here, and it indeed is coming. Like, wait on him. And we actually get a sense of this type of expectation in our teaching text for today. Let me show you. It's all, it's all queued up by that one phrase, that day. Or you, you could just say, the day. And the day, it operates like a hyperlink in the text. It's like when you're on Wikipedia and you're reading about, you know, the great historical source of Wikipedia and you see something and you click it and then it brings you to a whole new thing. You know, how it's 2022. We know what hyperlinks are. Okay, keep going. So the, the day, it functions like that. It reminds us of this uh, Israel's longing, the people of God, they're longing for a coming day when their anxieties would give way to the peace of God. The day would both be a day of judgment, but it would also be a day of where, where all of the wrong things were put right. And when we see that, it, the author is intentional in placing that word there. 
It's what the, what the prophets of old called the day of the Lord, the ultimate arrival, when heaven and earth would be reunited by the peace of God. So when we read in our teaching text that we are to be ready for that day, they didn't know upon the day when they would the, the homeowner would return, all of these are queuing up. It's like that expectation is embedded in that passage. And though many of Israel's religious leaders thought that the day would come by force, it would be like the showing of, of Yahweh's, the Lord's strong right arm. It would come through might and it would come through military aggression. Jesus' claim that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, it frustrated the wisdom of the religious leaders. Because Jesus, he didn't take up the weapons of the world to fight the world. He did indeed come in the name of Yahweh, but not how the people wanted not how they expected. He didn't come and kind of beat back the empire with weapons of violence and force. He didn't come and exalt Israel over the nations. Instead, Jesus came to dig out this root of rebellion, this rebellion that is in our hearts still to this day. He came to, to dig that out and to conquer this cosmic power of sin by loving his enemies even unto death. It's like Jesus is there with us at the dinner table and the conversations about gun control or voting for whoever in 2024, like Jesus is there enduring that. And he says, you actually have space in your body because of me to bear up that pain. I feel that frustration. And he allows you to see those people that we call those people. He allows you to see them as those whom he loves, as people worthy of dignity. See, but the irony of this story is, is that the world's instrument of death, namely the cross, it actually became this strange portal to life. Do you realize this is the beauty of the story we get to live into? The things that feel like death can be portals to life, that in the darkness light can break forth, that God in Christ defeated death by the power of the Spirit to then set love loose in a world that would stand in opposition. So that anybody who might actually take up their cross and follow him could embody the same type of reality. This, this is what Advent invites us into. Advent stands year after year as an invitation to live into this inside out story. Like when God comes in the flesh, in the middle of history, he turns the story inside out. And we get to like take up this story as our own. And it may not be glorious, I think one of the, the harms that, I, like, I don't know if I would say a harm, one of the frustrations I encountered as a new follower of Jesus was that all of my wrongs would be put right. And at some level that was true, but there were still the consequences of my choices that were bearing out in my body and around me. And then the consequences of other choices that came to bear on me. And then there was this huge ripple and like, you, you get what I'm saying here? That there is this temptation to say that no, everything will be okay, but but Jesus actually has something different to say. That there can be joy amid the suffering, but the suffering still may be there. In fact, Jesus says this before our teaching text in the passage, picking up in verse nine in Matthew 24, we read this. Speaking to his followers, this is what you ought to expect. You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. 
but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus names the darkness. He actually names the condition within which we exist, within which followers of Jesus will occupy. And again, that doesn't mean that there is an absence of joy. And this is, this is by no means like a moment where we go, okay, so all of life with Jesus is suffering? No, that's, that's not the place. It's to say that there is a reality, there is a harshness that can come. And if that's the case, what shall we do? Like if, if, if indeed there's going to be a time just like described as hatred from the nations, betrayal and hatred of each other, where there's wickedness and love is growing cold, like what do, what do we do in the midst of that? Well, that's what this first Sunday of Advent brings us to because Jesus in his honesty, he, he reminds us of this. He calls us to this. He says this in verse 42. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour that you do not expect him. Keep watch and be ready. So at this point, the, the preacher's temptation, so my temptation, is to move from this simple call of Jesus. By the way, like teaching on Advent year after year is not like a sexy sermon because all of the texts, though in three-year rotation, you get some new gospel texts from the lectionary, it's functionally the same message. Each first Sunday of Advent is something like this. Have hope in the darkness. Why the repetition? My guess is because the darkness persists and so too does the light, but sometimes it feels like the darkness is taking ground on the light. So the words of Jesus come as an encouragement to the church that's still situated in darkness to say, do not withdraw. Like actually lean into the light, to the, to the, the place where it goes and stand at the brink of it because I am with you there. But there in the midst of that, we're not called to then like build a barrier. No, we're called to keep watch and to be ready. And so the temptation is to move from that simple call and then give like a Christ-centered like Advent pep talk. Like, okay, okay come on church, like in, 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 I don't know, like in your office, do these things. And I guess that's at some point we do need to keep our eyes on Jesus, look neither left nor right, leave evil in the dust. It's just that those things are not enough. And what I mean by that is like, we need to build a life of discipleship to Jesus that reminds us of the beauty of Jesus so we actually know what we're looking for. And it's not just that if we keep our eyes on Jesus, then like we won't actually have some sort of stumbling thing in front of us. So in some sense, there are pitfalls that we need to be aware of so that we might be ready to keep watch and to be ready and I think today, I just want to draw our attention to two unique pitfalls that we need to be aware of so we might be like the ones who stand firm to the end. And these two pitfalls, these Advent pitfalls, are a failure of nerve and a failure of heart. Todd Bolsinger, who is a, a, an, an academic at some level, but he's really moved toward like equipping leaders in the church 
he, he's borrowing on the work of a rabbi named Edwin Friedman, who is also a family systems therapist. And he just unpacks these two pitfalls like this. He says, a failure of nerve is caving to the pressure of the anxiety of the group to return to the status quo. It's, it's like, take that conversation at the dinner table from this past week, the one where you stay awkwardly silent or b because you like don't want to ruffle the feathers. In some sense, it's allowing those moments to stand and, and you actually retreat into the pressure of the group rather than stating your case with humility. A failure of nerve is, is this loss of courage to further the mission and a failure of heart is the emotional cutoff that occurs when the leader's discouragement leads them to psychologically abandon their people and the charge they have been given. One is this external collapse, this failure of nerve, and the other, a failure of heart, is this internal collapse. So one bows and retreats, it kind of collapses into the pressure of the moment, and the other kind of folds inward on itself, unable to actually stand in that. And so I just wanna take these one at a time to identify these pitfalls, because it would be one thing to say, keep watch and be ready. But I think it would be to say that ignorant of the moment we live in. And so failure of nerve. This is when we cannot handle the rejection of the group. See, I, I, I'd like us to just remember Jesus's audience. When Jesus is teaching in this passage, he's talking to his disciples. And just, uh, just if you can, uh, picture this with me. This is the crew. This is the crew that heard Jesus declare that God's kingdom was at hand, and then they saw him begin to embody it in the flesh. These are the ones chosen by Jesus to like represent a new move of God in history. Imagine being one of these 12. Imagine what it must have been like to be with Jesus as he preached with authority. It would, it would almost be like there has to be a moment that you can recall when some person from some, like they preached and it was like something happened in your heart. It stirred your affections for Jesus. It convicted you of some sin that you were carrying, some secret sin. Imagine hearing Jesus preach with authority. You see him, imagine seeing him cast out demons. Imagine being with Jesus as he heals the lame, as he gives sight to the blind. Like, I actually don't know if we have categories for this yet. Like in, in secret, by the way, these are the things I'm praying for our community, <laughs> that we would see a move of Jesus such that all of a sudden we would be confounded by the authority of Jesus. Nothing that we carry, but it's like somebody says, I need healing for this. Do you, like, can you do that? It's like, well, no, I can't, but I know the one who can. And then we pray and people are literally healed in their bodies. Like these are the things that I, I hope that we contend for. And yet imagine seeing Jesus, the power of God flowing through him. It must have been amazing. And now imagine like it's not just that you're on that crew, but you're like on the inner circle. You're one of the three, Peter, James, and John. When Jesus goes away to pray, like Jesus goes on a prayer retreat and he invites you. When Jesus goes up and he goes away and to be transfigured before the Father, like you are the three who are there. All categories have to be blown for you. And you're on the inner circle of Jesus who's gonna establish the kingdom. And now imagine that um, you're the vocal one of the three. You're Peter. You know the life of Jesus. 
You're the one who affirms that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the God's anointed one, the one who would save the people of Israel. You're the one who recognizes Jesus' words as the ones who, who have eternal life. You're the one who claims that if everyone falls away, you will remain. You could say that Peter was like a man of great faith in some sense. Like you know the life of Jesus, you know the voice of Jesus, you know the power of Jesus, you know the tenderness of Jesus, you know all of it. But then when Jesus is given over into the hands of men, where are you? Well, if you know the story, you know that you're following at a distance, as Mark will say, or as Luke portrays the events, you're warming your hands by a fire, you're being confronted by a teenage girl, and withdrawing eventually to the point where you're like calling down curses on Jesus. You never knew that man. See, Peter is this picture of a failure of nerve where under the pressure of the moment, this cultural momentum, he collapses under it. And in the end, he cannot handle the rejection of the group. I don't, I don't really know how this translates in modern day. I'm like, I'm trying to draw up in my mind, like, is there a person who could text you right now and would like dissuade you from your confession? Is there an HR form that if you filled it out, all of a sudden it would not just put a wrinkle in your life with Jesus, but would disconnect you from it? And I think that we have some Peter instincts in us. It's like this self-protection. And right now, in this place, literally, in, in this gathering spot, like, there is an easiness to follow Jesus. But what about when you step into the world? And there is no benefit to following Jesus. There's no, like, cultural cachet. What if it actually, like, costs you to follow Jesus? See, in a single night... Peter goes from dining with Jesus as one of the 12 to denying Jesus when a teenage girl applies some cultural pressure. This would be like you tweet something and then it gets retweeted and like shamed or something like that. And I just want to be clear, I'm not calling us to some sort of embattled cultural position where it's like Christian versus culture. I just want to say, like, this is a simple reminder that when cultural momentum shifts and it costs us to follow Jesus, are we going to be ready? Will we be the ones who can stand firm? Are we keeping watch? Or will we be like Peter who suffer a failure of nerve and collapse into the anxiety around us for the sake of our own safety? And these might sound like probing questions of like, whoa, dude, like, I thought we were supposed to be encouraged here. Well, Advent says the darkness is real and the light is breaking out. So can we not be the people who hold the tension of the two? But if that's a failure of nerve, is there a picture of a failure of heart? If that's the external collapse, is there a picture from the scriptures of an internal collapse? And you bet there is. The life of Moses. See, for the Christian, a failure of heart is this, like, is the idea of faithfulness without love. Uh, Bolsinger will go on to describe a failure of heart as this kind of internal brittleness, this hardening of one's heart. And just as Peter stands out as that picture of collapsing into the anxiety of the moment, Moses stands out as an image of this internal collapse, kind of folding in with bitterness of heart. And maybe this comes to a shock because when you think of Moses, you think of all of the children's literature. I get to read a lot of uh, kids' Bible stories in this season of my life, and Moses is always a rock star. 
He's amazing. And if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you know what I'm talking about. Like Moses is the guy. See, Moses it's, has a really compelling story because Moses is born with a death sentence on his head. And it's through the ingenuity of the women in his life that his life is then spared. Do you remember this? Moses' mother puts him in what is translated as an ark. It's a basket. It's literally the same word in Hebrew that Noah built. So Moses is in an ark going down. And you're like, oh my gosh, the, the, like another hyperlink. Here we go. And then Moses' sister comes and intercedes and he gets raised in the courts of royalty with power and privilege, but he never forgets his people. He remembers them, and one day he sees his people, the people of Israel, he sees them being oppressed by the people whom he has this strained relationship. He's in the courts of power, but he's never quite one of them. He's still a Hebrew, and he sees the oppression of his true people, and he strikes down the oppressor. And what seems like this act of valor actually becomes the inciting incident that compel, like, propels him into the wilderness, almost this miniature exile. And it's there by this surprise turn of events that Moses encounters the power of God. God meets Moses and invites him to be the one who would indeed strike down the oppressor, but it wouldn't be by his hand, it would be by God's hand. And Moses, he does this uh, quite reluctantly, but nevertheless goes and God moves with power and he delivers the people of Israel. It's quite, it's quite remarkable. If you want to go back, go and just read through the Exodus account. God displaying his powers, the one true God over these oppressors of his people. And then in the wake of that, God asks, do these people want to become one with him? And they say, yes. And it's functionally like on the honeymoon, Moses goes up to receive like the guiding contract, this covenant, this guiding reality for the people. And on the honeymoon, they essentially have this affair. Moses is the one because of his heart that is for the people. The one who comes down is grieved and Yahweh essentially wants to wipe out all of these people and start over with Moses. But Moses says, no, not them, take me in their place. Moses' heart is for the people. But also within the people is the spirit of rebellion that just will not shake. And it's like they want deliverance and it comes, but they want it on their own terms. They want provision, it comes, manna, like a miracle in the wilderness, but that's not enough, so they want meat, and that comes. They want water, and that comes. It's just like there's this constant murmuring and bitterness and bickering, and, and just it, it becomes too much. And at another point in the story, the people, again, are, are they're thirsting, and they're saying, did you bring us out into the wilderness to die? Like, do you, remember the, do you remember the provision we had in Egypt? Do you remember the, the, the leeks? Do you remember the garlic, the soup? And eat, like, certainly you've brought us out here just to die. And Moses, who's fed up, he goes over and, and like God has said, speak to the rock and water will come forth. But what Moses has done in the past is he's actually struck a rock with his staff. And so instead of heeding and trusting God to move in a new way for this new moment, he goes back to this old moment and he strikes the rock with this bitterness toward the people. And that becomes the moment that bars Moses from going into the land of promise, not trusting God. That is the failure of heart. It is the internal collapse at the demands of the people around you, the frustration. And you know, um, Christian community can be a beautiful thing. Like on paper, 
Christian community, the gathering together of difference, people dialoguing across that, men, women, like across different ethnicities. But what happens is you put real people into a church and um, what happens? Just look around for a moment. This is kind of like an image. How are we seated together right now? Like we kind of, we do this naturally. We come together, and I'm not, this isn't like throwing shade at you or anything. It's just to observe that we gather together. We move toward the people we're comfortable with. And most of the time, we like, we'll take a little step and by God's grace, like a lot of us are growing to trust one another, but still there's like this strained and fragile trust. And when bitterness gets in there, bitterness squelches love. Love is this orientation that toward the other that's willing to give at your own cost. Bitterness is like a root that goes down so that love can never take up residence. Moses gets bitterness in his heart toward the people. And what happens, notice, you'll notice this, Moses never talks to the people the same again. His heart is never quite for them in the same way. When he talks about God moving on their behalf, he says, these are your people, you have to deal with them. There's this bitterness in it. Even when they look out into the land, the generation who was not a part of the Exodus, he says, you did these things. You have barred me from entry. And it's not quite them, it's his, his heart, his failure of heart. There's the pressure from without, a failure of nerve, the pressure from within, a failure of heart. And if these two pitfalls are in front of us in this season, well, how do we stand firm? How do we keep watch? How do we trust that the light won't actually give way to the darkness? Well, this is when we fix our eyes on Jesus. I think it's actually in the reality of the darkness that the light becomes more beautiful. And maybe it's the contrast, but maybe it's something else. But if, if these are the pitfalls, like how do we stand firm? Will we fix our eyes on Jesus? Just think about Jesus for a moment with me. Have you ever thought about Jesus's relationship to the people around him, the religious elite of the day? Like there was, Jesus very well could have collapsed into the anxiety of the day, the desire for power. And, and, and what they see is that Jesus is gonna move in a different way. So they're constantly trying to trip him up in his words. They're, they're constantly trying to arrest him. And on the opposite side of that, you have the, Jesus and the crowds, like the people of God. They're pressing in for healing, for food, for whatever. There's even a moment when Jesus provides miraculously for them, but then they come seeking him and they're like, you're not seeking me for what I have to offer. You're just seeking me for the food that's available. They want what Jesus can give, not to the actual person of Jesus. And in the face of both of these pressures, this pressure to be a person of power and the person to, to be the provision at every turn, like Jesus does not collapse externally or internally. And instead, Jesus stands firm. And the snarky answer to like, well, how does he do it? will be like, well, he's God. And kind of. It's true that Jesus shared in God's nature, but re recall, Paul in the New Testament will say that he not, did not consider his position with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. He emptied himself and became nothing, even becoming a servant. And so, if he didn't take advantage of that, how did he stand firm? Well, I, this is the term that I would offer for us today. It's this term, differentiation. 
So this is a, a psychological term. It, it is really talking about a secure sense of self. Differentiation is really the ability to stand apart without the need of affirmation or the guarantee of outcomes. The ability to stand apart without the need of affirmation or the guarantee of outcomes, without the people pleasing or the results we want. This is where it's important for us to keep Jesus in view when we talk about differentiation because it's really easy to pick up the language of differentiation and then just um, kind of import our own selfishness or our own ideology. So you can pick up this psychological term, which is actually quite helpful and a, a, a thing to move toward, but you could pick it up and just say things like, well, um, I don't really care what they say because I'm well differentiated. In other words, you can be a jerk about a position you hold, for example, and say, I, I actually don't care. Like, I'm a well-differentiated person, so they can say whatever they want. I won't collapse into their anxiety. I won't give way to their pressure. I'm going to stand here. See, there's a difference between the position you hold and how you hold it. So you can stand apart without actually, like, causing harm. Jesus does this. Jesus doesn't just collapse into those pressures. Jesus doesn't collapse into the cultural identity of the day, which cultural identities are fragile at best, and in some sense that you have to perform them to keep them up. But with Jesus, there is another way that presents itself, another way of godly differentiation. See, when Jesus comes on the scene and he receives John's baptism of repentance, like the heavens declare this moment. This is a famous scene, right? We, we know this moment. This is, this is my son with whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. It's a declaration from the heavens, an affirmation of Jesus's identity. It's like, whoa, it's a powerful moment. And I heard one preacher say it like, Jesus's hair is still wet from the baptism and he is cast into the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that the first question that comes to him is, if indeed you are the son of God. Jesus is affirmed from the heavens and then he goes into the wilderness and the first thing that comes to him is, is this truly who you are? The test is around Jesus's identity. And in and out of the church, there's all this talk about identity. It's like identity, identity, identity. If you go to a women's Bible study, it's on identity. If you go to a men's group, it's like identity, even though there's a bit of confusion, it's like, and then you go into politics, it's identity politics, it's LGBTQI identity, it's everywhere. Why are we clamoring for identity? My guess is, is that we actually want somewhere to stand firm. We wanna know who I am and how can I make my way forward in the world. And when you have to construct your own identity, there is a fragility. And when somebody attacks that identity, it feels like they're attacking you. But if there's another way where we're not desperately trying to root ourselves and stand in our own security, but if there's another way where we might encounter hope and identity can be spoken over us, we can receive identity, that sounds like a place of security, a place where we can stand on the edge of the lights and keep watch and be ready. 
See, the hope that is embedded in this season is this, that we might remember who and whose we are. And that can sound trite and fickle and thin, but this is who, if you want to trust Jesus, this is what God says over you in Christ, that you are chosen, that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are sealed, that you are secure. In Christ, we have overcome sin and Satan and death itself, that in Christ, the old has gone and the new has come. Let me hear that. Let me, let me just read this again so that you know, then um, if we're in like a Pentecostal space, now I'm going to start preaching. Like in Christ, this is who you are. And I'm thinking maybe you stand in the mirror and I'm not talking like, like little affirmations, like you're saying, okay, like I'm going to pump myself up. No, this is who you are in Christ. You are chosen and loved and sealed and secure and forgiven. You have victory over sin and Satan and death. The old has gone and the new has come. In the face of fragile identity, the security that we have in God through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that will stand. And it's something that I'm hoping is the foundation of this church. There is actually no other foundation to build on. And the beauty, at least that I've felt in this season is that like this season feels like a type of darkness. I can't speak for other churches in Des Moines, but it's just like, man, it feels like, what does it mean for us to hold on to the fidelity of Jesus, to hold on to this place of trying to embody it, trying to practice the way? It feels like a solitary flame amid the darkness. What if this season is the place that we remember who and whose we are? What if we remember that we are held by God in Christ and that because of our position, we can actually be secure? What if we actually believed these things? It's said that the greatest threat to our obedience is resonance. Like you come to church on a Sunday morning and the song resonates with you. You hear me teaching, you hear someone teaching and they say, this is who you are in Christ, live into this. And you're like, yeah, that really speaks to my heart. But it's not actually there. It resonates with you, but it's not gotten into your life. And maybe you think, well, like I actually can't. The, the, the pressure is too great. You don't know the work environment. You don't know how progressive it is or how conservative it is. You don't know my family of origin. I'm too young in my faith. You don't know what I've done. Well, let me just remind you of Peter as we close. Peter stands warming his hands by the fire. And as he's there and he's undone by the, uh, like the, the cultural momentum of a teenage girl, he denies Jesus. And do you remember the scene? Jesus looks across the courtyard and catches Peter's face and he is undone and he goes out and weeps uncontrollably. And then the cross happens, Peter is not there. The resurrection takes place and there's still this wondering. P Peter runs with the beloved disciple John, he runs and but there's still, while John believed Peter, I don't know, he ends up going fishing. And in that place, there's this chance encounter where they see this, this rabbi, this man on the, on the shore of the sea, and he calls him. And in these moments, Peter is restored. And for each of the denials, Jesus announces his love over him. And where Peter said, I will stay, even if everyone else falls away, I will stay. The reality is that Jesus restores us even in the face of our failure. And beyond that, what happens is like, 
Jesus stands not in his own strength. He stands because the Spirit fills him. And when you then read in Acts of how Peter preaches, people are like coming in droves because the Spirit is moving through. The same Spirit that moved in Peter, the same Spirit that fell at Pentecost is the same Spirit that gives us the courage and, and ability to stand today.